Yeah, so there's there's something that's in conflict with this idea of skepticism, which is uh, so Carl Sagan, who once again he was uh, he's kind of like the the OG Neil deGrasse Tyson, made science cool, you know, a generation or two ago, and you know his his story itself is is really cool. You know, his parents were immigrants. His dad was a garment worker. His mom was a stay-at-home mom, taking care of kids, and they risked everything to come from you know, Russia to you know, to immigrate to the United States. And he kept this explorer mentality. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. So Shane, can we maybe dive into the definition of lateral thinking as we think about it? Yeah, so I think of lateral thinking juxtaposed against logical thinking. So if you think back to math class in you know ninth grade or whenever you learned algebra, A plus B equals C, um, A equals B, that means A plus A equals C. You know, the, the logical, straightforward, solve the math problem kind of, of thinking that's that's linear it's uh you know you're taking things and you're step by step coming to a conclusion what lateral thinking is is it's about coming up with a new way to get to that conclusion so you know in in math class i don't know if this ever happened to you but where you know the teacher always wanted you to show your work and and sometimes i would do this certainly you know it's a big story problem whatever you're supposed to find the answer and I would get the answer, but but I, I got it by doing something completely different than I was supposed to, and then you get docked for it. That, I think, is kind of insane to apply that sort of thinking in real life, to say that you arrived at an answer, but the way you arrived at it was uh, not the way that I wanted you to, so it's wrong. That is, is, is linear thinking. So lateral thinking is coming up with different ways to, to arrive at things. So elastic thinking, you could think of in terms of a lateral thinking as a mechanism for finding new ways to do things. Lateral thinking is the finding of new ways to do things. And in Smart Cuts, I use this analogy of building your own ladder. So let's say we're talking about careers. You want to be the CEO of a big company. And, uh, and so you could get in at the entry level as an intern and then slowly work your way up the ladder. You pay your dues. You do what the requirements are to fit the mold and to eventually, you know, you get upgraded and promoted, you wait for people to die, you need to take their spot and eventually you become the CEO. Or you could build your own ladder. You could start your own company and, and get a lot of CEO-like experience early on, do a lot of things that are much more difficult than being told what you're supposed to do, but then get to a point where you get hired as the CEO of this other company because you've proven that you have the chops and suddenly you're CEO of the big company, you know, in half the time that it would have taken and you're probably more creative at a, and, and successful as a CEO because you have this alternate experience. So that's a, you know, sort of a rudimentary analogy um, or example of this idea. Lateral thinking is coming up with a different path to achieving the goal. And in doing so, you are coming up with, you're, you're being more innovative at achieving the goal itself. So that's how I define lateral thinking is it's uh, that inventing a different route to, to the goal. And, and fundamentally, what it often means is rethinking what the goal is, rethinking the assumptions around solving the problem. So like I said before with the analogy of the car and the old lady, you assume that the problem to be solved is picking the right person to sit in the driver's seat to drive them home. But actually, the problem to be solved is helping everyone out to achieve their goals, repaying the friend, saving the old lady, making a connection with the person of your dreams and living happily ever after. That's the problem to be solved. So lateral thinking by saying we have to come up with a different route to solving this problem, it actually forces you to rethink what the problem actually is, which is uh, is something that we can get into later when we, in future uh, episode when we talk about first principles thinking. But, but yeah, that's that's how I would define it. It's building the new ladder to to get to the the solution to the problem. Well, I love it, and I I think for me it's so fun. I obviously I've read and reread the book Smart Cuts multiple times, and the way that you have been able to identify this, whether it's you know the tech CEO who became really successful quickly by not doing the old way, and then became a great race car driver, or the presidents yeah. of the United States that get there faster than most senators become senators, but then 
the surfers, the surfers who are better surfers and win the competitions, and that like that you show how it shows up in these multiple domains for some reason helps me kind of identify how it might show up in my space, you know. So, anyways, I feel like it's a favor to the rest of us that you've identified how it shows up in multiple areas instead of having you do the work of like, yeah, but I don't do that one thing. So, how does that translate? Oh well, thank you. Well, I think you know I'm glad you brought up the surfer one. Because it's an example of how lateral thinking manifests in many different ways. So if all you heard was the analogy of you want to be CEO of a big company, so come up with your own alternate per- career path, then uh, then you might try applying that you know career path, build your own ladder thing to other types of problems where it's not actually the best way to employ lateral thinking. It's not the most relevant way to rethink the problem. The surfing one, I think, is really an interesting example because – when you get to basically the summary is when you get to professional surfing levels where everyone is an extremely good swimmer, they're extremely good at surfing. What makes the difference between who wins the champions championships is not how big their muscles are. It's not, you know, doing more exercises and becoming a better swimmer or anything like that. It's who's better at identifying the best opportunities, the best waves to ride. So the best world champion surfers are the ones that show up to the beach at six in the morning and study the water and look for the patterns and study exactly how the water is moving at that break at that day so that then they can can actually come up with their approach. And it's, it reminds me of a quote by Einstein. He said that, allegedly, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about solutions. That's the idea of lateral thinking is it's if you're in surfing, that's going to mean something different. The ladder that you build is going to be different than if it's you know wanting to be CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So that's that's the principle right there, spending more time doing the painful thinking so that you can then have an easier, faster time doing the executing because you've come up with a better plan. I love that. It's like that saying, uh, don't just act, stop and think. Yep. And this is this is what this is all about, right? It's the getting into the habit of stopping and thinking like that. That's actually hard. Well, especially when we've been good at something, you know, we've got our ruts. We know we can probably take this hammer and if it's not a nail, we can still pound it in, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's pretty much worked in the past so far, right? You know, it's funny you brought up stoicness a little bit earlier. And I think about like this idea of like separating what we can control and what we can't control, right? Like mm-hmm. having spent years living in Huntington Beach and Sacramento and surfing all those years, I think about like, you know, you can't you can't really change the wave, but you can change how you're gonna surf it, you know? Yeah. And like that acknowledgement what's going on and what I can control and what I can't control. And then like you're talking about this elastic thinking of like, here's the given route, here's the how you should surf it, but is that the only option? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's anyways, to me that, that resonates as a surfer. Thinking like Oh good. Uh, I'm glad. <laughs> I, I'm I'm yeah. kind of a crap surfer. So I'm glad that it holds for someone who's better at it. Well, it, it's interesting, you know, I don't know if you ever saw that video of those pros that went and built a dock, built a dock out in the break, and it's yeah. this movable plastic dock that looks like a big snake, and they're just running out and jumping on the wave and stuff like that, right? So awesome. And no paddling involved. Anyways, we, we yeah, can move well, on, but that really works for me. It's a great example if uh, you recognize that, hey, I love the surfing part of surfing, and I hate the waiting and the swimming out and swimming past the waves part. I just want to work on my, you know, surfing skills, building a dock that's out there right by the break so you can jump onto the wave and, and avoid all of that extra work that is uh, is not accruing to your actual surfing practice. That's amazing. That's a, that's a perfect example of a smart cut. Well, and I, you know, I know we've got so many entrepreneurs listening to us. Maybe one last one I'll give you weigh in on is I think about a version of this. I feel like I learned from one of my clients who's a good friend. I went to art school with the same place you and I both went to university. And she has, she has a big marketing firm that, you know, clients, Facebook, Intel, all these big folks, right? And so she had taken me to one of these clients with her and we were presenting to this, you know, huge board, like 23 people that had to approve something that they do in big companies. And she was talking about this principle of watering holes of like, yeah, you could build an audience. You could build, you could try to gather all these ideal clients, but wouldn't it be a lot faster to find out the watering hole where all these people are hanging out already and figure out mm-hmm. what we can do to scratch the back of the people who already own that watering hole? Like this would take you years to put those people together. We could probably come up with something pretty quick to be a value to the people who've already gathered them. Any thoughts on that? That's- I mean, I love that analogy, like watering hole. I was wondering where you're going with that, but I, I like it 
because I mean, it speaks to, you know, reinventing the wheel, right? Like there are some, if you have in this example, right, content information, that's valuable. You've done the work to make the thing that's going to be valuable. Why would you then reinvent all the work to get people to pay attention to it, right? And not go somewhere where they're going to already need it and pay attention to it anyway. It's like, we have these myths, I think, especially I would say in, in American culture that sort of descends from the sort of uh, Protestant work ethic thing that came over with the pilgrims, which is that if you're not breaking your back and doing it all yourself, then you're then it's not like uh, good work, right? It's not it's not honest work. And, and I think that's sort of a crazy notion. And it flies in the face of, you know, everything we know in economics about specialization and all of that. Like, if you have something of value, then why do you have to do everything else? It's like, uh, you know, for me, in my experience running a company, starting a company and doing all the things to prove out the business model and to get customers and all of that is a very different set of skills than scaling a company from $15 million to $100 million in revenue and you know the operational management and and so many startup CEOs are expected they feel this pressure to be both of those people to have both those sets of skills and that's kind of crazy it's like i don't know it's like i have i have a friend who's a pro wrestler which is a really cool job actually it's like expecting a pro wrestler to also be good at like marketing pro wrestling it's like no you spend a million hours in the gym learning how to do every style of fighting like this guy can do every judo kickboxing everything and he's like massive and really good at fighting why does he need to be the one that knows how to make posters and like get people to come to the show like that's ridiculous uh, but so often in in all sorts of areas of life we put all of these things on ourselves because it doesn't feel honest for some reason and i think because it like that feeling comes from this sort of misplaced notion of what what hard work and what honest work is so the watering hole thing i think is a perfect analogy of it if you I mean, if you have garbage and you're going to put garbage in the watering hole that's a different story you haven't actually made the thing of value and done that hard work it's not to say that you haven't done hard work but if you put more effort into the thing that's going to be valuable and then you bring it to where people already are i think that's fantastic and there's no dishonesty in that and in fact you might just make something better than the person that's so fixated on building the audience too. You know, you think about how much work it would do to like drive your Land Rover across the savanna <laughs> to like get your photos of all these different animals and chase them all down one by one, right? Mm -hmm. um, versus like somebody that's already got, somebody that already owns a watering hole where they all gather already, you're like, hey, I'll bring the hay, I'll bring the feed to make it, to make your watering hole even more attractive. They're like, oh, that's great. I'd love that. You know, think about, I don't know. I just think about everything you just said. And it's like, for me, I tie it back to the school system so much. Mm -hmm. We just get ingrained, like you were saying earlier, solve this problem and solve it the way that I said. And P.S. don't collaborate, do it yourself. Otherwise, that's cheating, right? Mm -hmm. And there are so many ways to skip rungs and ladders where we hurt people. And like you call them smart cuts, you know, who are giving up our ethics to jump ahead of the line. And everybody hates when somebody jumps, like, you know, when you're, you've been waiting in line for two hours somewhere and somebody's 18 friends come to the spot he's age. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we, Hate we, that. There yeah. is this sense of unfairness, right? And, yeah. And, but I feel like we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater on, yes. you know, we just get ingrained in school, that's cheating, wait your turn, right? Um, and, and what we throw out with that is like, we just mindlessly accept unnecessary work all the time, right? Yep. And it's, and it's often arbitrary which things we, we decide are okay to let other people do or to, you know, what platforms to stand on. You, you, you just made me think like people, most people have, who are in internet business have no problem buying a photo that someone else has taken and using it on their website. If you thought that the only honest way to do it would be to go out and take all your own photos, then when you needed a photo of a line, you would have to go drive across the Sahara in your Land Rover and do that which is absurd, but we apply that very same logic to so many things that, that we don't think about. And this, I mean, this ties back exactly to, I mean, this is what lateral thinking is about. There are so many questions in life that have assumptions built in about those kinds of things. You know, just like I made you assume that you have to stay in the car in order to help the person out. We have so many of those assumptions that, that we don't even like realize are just built into our thinking process. And it, you know, I think people, it's, it's very easy to turn into a jerk by saying like, I'm going to assume nothing and everything is wrong and everyone's wrong. 
but it gets at a really important principle, which is the value of skepticism when it comes to, to innovative thinking. I mean, I guess like question for you, when, when I say that someone's a skeptical person, does that sound like a positive thing necessarily to you? No, because so often for me, it gets lumped in with the, with pessimism. You know, people who say I'm a realist when really they're a pessimist, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, you know, there can be like, uh, a, like a sense of feeling special for being the one who doesn't buy it. You know, like there's those mm-hmm. people who maybe they're not even intellectually skeptical skeptical but they would like to have the image of being the skeptical one and they they get this certain specialness from creating friction you know and even though it's a negative attention it is a form of attention and so and so often when it shows up in that form there's a cutting nature to it like it has a bite to it it's not from a place of intellectual honesty it's from a it's from a place that uh, is kind of tearing others down rather than seeking truth together and yet in the, you know, anyways, I would love for you to talk about value of skepticism and how to do it right. Well, you just clicked for me, I think, a way of, I, I think I, I, I kind of like the idea of the term intellectual skepticism because it gets at, at a key difference. So, yeah, you're exactly right. A lot of times we conflate or we when we hear skepticism, we think pessimism or we think cynicism, right? Pessimism being that you don't think that the world is good or will get better. Cynicism meaning that you're starting from a place of people suck and and it's going to go wrong, right? Where skepticism in the history of science is sort of this key breakthrough idea which and I think if we were to to add the, you know, the modifier intellectual skepticism, this is really what the scientists, you know, like Sir Francis Bacon uh, and Isaac Newton meant when they talked about skepticism skepticism is about not accepting things at face value just because they're told to you. You know, it's, it's just because you see something doesn't mean that you can assume everything. It's, it's about making sure that things are true before you, you take them in, which is different than being a jerk than being acting like you're special. Cause like, Oh, I'm the one that doesn't go along. Like you're saying, or then, then being a Debbie downer and saying, Oh, well, it'll never work. You know, people never change, whatever. That's not skepticism. That's, that's cynicism and pessimism. But, but we do kind of lump them together But from an intellectual standpoint saying just because someone said something doesn't mean it's true. And like even better couple that with, and it's not personal. So I don't think you're bad uh, cause you said it and, and I'm, I'm going to be kind about it too. Like that, I think, is important to like truly yeah. keeping it intellectually intellectual. It's like instead of being a troll, right? We all hate the trolls who are saying they're just being a little skeptical, right? Mm-hmm. Because even saying, I don't know, I'm skeptical of that. It, it, ha- it has an almost an underpinning of like maybe this person isn't trustworthy aspect to it. Yeah. Right. But this mm-hmm. idea of like respectful skepticism of like, hey, can we can we look at the data together and, and verify, you know, that is actually really attractive to me. Yeah. I like that. I, I like that uh, that distinction. So the idea of skepticism, I think, in all of this is is again like kind of the theme of what we've been talking about. When you encounter information, or you encounter a question, or situation, whatever it is, taking a second to ask, is that true? And and I think there's some steps to it. It's a uh, whenever you identify an assumption, or you know, or a thing that's that you encounter information, clarifying the origin of that asking yourself why do i assume this or why why is this thing that's being presented to me as a fact true and uh, yeah being able to do that respectfully i think is key so scientists if you think of the most dispassionate scientist uh, they're exactly that it's like nerd in a lab coat you know with some beakers and some things exploding in the background and they say well i've observed that this is three centimeters why is that and it's like there's no sort of emotion to that thinking process and and we we make fun of it but if you can, you know, the separate discussion is there's a lot of value in emotions. Humans have them for a reason. But if you're thinking about lateral thinking, breaking things down um, and asking that obnoxious, well, why is this and is this true question becomes really uh, useful and interesting and applying that actually to our own feelings. I feel something like I feel taken aback by this. I feel threatened by this or I feel angry by this information or, or whatever okay, that means this is important to me, and why? And why do I feel this way? Using the feeling as a trigger to think harder. And uh, so there's all sorts of uh, you know, cognitive biases that we bring into, in, into bear when we are solving problems that if we stop and we, we just question them, it often leads us to, to realize what are these rules or assumptions that aren't rules. And that's what skepticism is. So you know, the affect heuristic is, is the cognitive bias of 
basically how you feel driving what you think. So I feel scared. So therefore, I think that this shouldn't be the case or shouldn't be true. Or I think this is dangerous information. Or there's the, you know, the, the recency bias, which is I heard something most recent. So that's what I remember. So that's what I think is more valuable. And just questioning, say, why do I think that this thing is more valuable? That kind of thing. So I, I don't know if I'm explaining this in abstract very well. So I can use a thing from Sherlock Holmes. In, uh, I believe it's the first Sherlock Holmes story. And I got this from, uh, from a friend of mine, Maria Konnikova, who wrote a whole book about how Sherlock Holmes thinks called Mastermind. She tells the story of when in the first Sherlock Holmes mystery, I believe, Watson and Sherlock encounter a woman who has a, you know, a mystery for them to solve, a murder mystery. And Watson describes her as she's lovely, she's very well put together, and she seems, you know, despite being well put together, she seems upset, you know, at the circumstances that are being put on her. And she reminds him of, uh, of very smart women in his past that he's dealt with, who also put themselves together very well. And so he, you know, he wants to help her, and he thinks that, that they need to take her case seriously. And Sherlock disregards the fact that she's lovely, does not uh, connect her to other women who look like her, who is known in the past to be trustworthy, and just assesses what it is she's saying. And the juxtaposition of those two things is, uh, is really telling, that he's operating from a skeptical point of view. He's not saying, I assume that she's bad, but he's saying, I am not assuming, based on how she looks, that she's a good or trustworthy person. And she has nothing to do with other women who look like her or who are well put together, who I've known in the past, which, by the way, is not enough data. How many women do I know? Is it in the thousands? Do I have statistical significance on women who dress like her that I can make a connection between their trustworthiness and her trustworthiness just because they dress alike? He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to take what she says at face value and try not to let those other things cloud my uh, view of the facts. The facts are her story is this. The facts are this is what she's told us. The facts are not should not be affected by my past experience with people like her unless we sit down and we actually determine that that is relevant information. So even though Watson is doing something that we often do and making connections, he's making some false connections. And so skepticism basically it would be if Watson had said, well, my instinct, my feeling is that I should trust her. Why is that? Well, she reminds me of so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Well, is it true that that's relevant? Are they representative of all women in the world and, and who I know? And should I actually uh, conflate how uh, trustworthy they are to the, how trustworthy this person is that I don't know? Another shorter example of this would be you encounter someone who's wearing glasses. You assume they're smart, but really all you can actually assume is that they don't see very well. And yet so often we assume they're smart. Skepticism would be saying, well, are they really smart? Because all we really know is they don't see very well. And you don't want to say that like, hey, are you dumb? Because uh, you wear glasses. I, I want to verify that you're smart. You don't want to say that. That's being a jerk. That's being a cynic. Just jumping to, oh, well, they're obviously stupid because they haven't got laser surgery or whatever. No, it's just saying facts are we observe glasses. And the only thing you can know from glasses is that they don't have perfect eyesight. You know, so there's a lot there, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. But there's so many good ideas. Like it, it reminds me of like, I guess mentally I'm thinking about the definition of BX earlier. I feel like, you know, being Gumby, if like X, you know, doing my elastic thinking to try and start the lateral thinking process would be something like playing the what if game. Like they dress like this, but what if they borrowed those clothes and this isn't who they are? And, yes. you know, like, because there are natural efficiencies. You can't throw out everything we know. There's there's natural efficiencies that play. we can bring from the past with us. We don't have to throw them in the garbage. But if we can push pause to think laterally of, like, what if these assumptions aren't true, right? Yes. And what if, what if this, what if this, what if this, just, like, almost like a thought experiment to see if there's a spark for the brain to, to like, tie two dots together or a third dot together. And, like, I guess it kind of relates back to me, too, of, like, I think about... Clayton Christensen from Harvard has such great thoughts on innovation thinking. And when he says things like, kind of like you said, just because someone said it, we don't need to assume it's true. We don't need to assume it's not true, but we don't need to. And he says things like, you know, somebody proposes a plan or a pitch an investment or whatever. What assumptions need to pre? What assumptions would need to prove true for that to come to pass? And I know it's not the same concept, but that's what it was reminding me of. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a, a great point that, you know, another cognitive bias that we use, and usually as a shortcut, is an authority figure said it, so we believe it. And 
that is, I mean, that's a logical fallacy because authority figures are wrong all the time. Authority figures aren't always right. Someone being an authority means that they have some level of knowledge and expertise and credibility. However, that can be true and they can be incorrect about a thing in isolation. So just like you can make general statements about populations of people, so people from Idaho, where I'm from, generally are poor or generally are Christian. If you pick one person from Idaho, you might find a rich Buddhist. So it's a same thing, I think, with anyone that you would lean on as a way to shortcut the answer to something. Authority figure or someone who, you know, God forbid, says, well, I have 30 years of experience, so I'm going to be right about this. You have to assume that in general, they may actually be smart and right about things. But in isolation, every single problem needs to stand on its own. That's what skepticism is about, is it's about not relying on things as blanket truths or blanket associations, but actually analyzing every discrete fact or assertion or assumption for its factual value. I love it. And I feel like you teased me with a story about something about the history of Star Trek that are related to this. Okay. Is that your part? Yeah. So there's, there's something that's in conflict with this idea of skepticism. Which is uh, so Carl Sagan, who once again he was uh, he's kind of like the the OG Neil deGrasse Tyson made science cool you know a, a generation or two ago, and you know his his story itself is is really cool you know his parents were immigrants his dad was a garment worker his mom was a stay at home mom taking care of kids and they risked everything to come from you know Russia to you know, to immigrate to the United States and he kept this explorer mentality, which is uh, is what made him want to be a scientist. He wanted to explore the unknown. He wanted to understand the unknown. And when he encountered this idea of skepticism being the foundation of science, you know, questioning whether things are the way they, they are presented to us and, and asking those questions and then experimenting to find the truth, he realized that that's kind of at odds with this idea of exploring. And, and you know, that's actually what Star Trek, I, I love the history of Star Trek because the fundamental premise of Star Trek was all about that, that you find the solutions to problems by exploring further than anyone else had explored. So, you know, the, the brief nerdy history of Star Trek is that the, the creator of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, he was a traffic cop who then started writing speeches for his police chief. And then when a, uh, a police TV show basically came to LAPD asking for advice on, on like writing up their police show, he got assigned to help them as an advisor, and uh, and then eventually he started writing episodes for this this cop show, and so he eventually quit being a, a traffic cop to full time be a screenwriter, and he always got these jobs as uh, as writing about basically crime and murder and and detective work, and he basically had in the back of his mind that uh, the TV was always about you know bad guys doing crimes and good people getting murdered. What would TV be about if we solved all of those problems and the world no longer had crime? And that's what the premise of Star Trek ended up being is uh, in the future, when we solved all the problems of humanity that couldn't even have a cop show, what would it be about? And so, you know, by doing the thought experiment of this, you know, what you would recognize, Jess, as, uh, as one might say, 10x thinking, what would the world be like if it was 10 times better there were no more crime. You know, we've solved energy. Energy is now free because it's so cheap to get it from the sun. Everyone has it. Uh, so everyone has their basic needs met for free. And also health technology has gotten so good that we can shine a laser beam on people and cure their cancer. So therefore, health is free for everyone. And we see it as a human right because we've, we've it's just we can do that. And, and, you know, in that scenario, we wouldn't need to, to fight for resources. So therefore, everyone from different races and creeds would all get along. And, you know, the Soviets and the Americans would be friends. They would no longer fight because we don't have to squabble over things. Our ideological differences wouldn't matter. And so then we'd, what would we do? Well, we'd make art and uh, probably go jet skiing. And, uh, and then we'd explore the universe to find people to help. And the only way that we could continue to make progress is by finding other problems to solve, which are out there in the universe. So that, that became the premise of Star Trek. And other sci-fi you know, stories were really niche and really never took off. And other sci-fi shows of the day didn't really make it in the way that Star Trek really changed the game and created essentially like the mainstream popularity of science fiction. And it was because they were willing to go out on a limb with these really interesting thought experiments and explore that future so far out and, and actually play that what if game that you're describing in terms of thinking big. 
And that, you know, you could say, well, skepticism is sort of at odds with that. Well, like, I'm skeptical that we could, you know, make cure cancer with a laser beam and make healthcare free. You know, that's a, that's kind of preposterous. How could that even work? You know, you might stop yourself from exploring the kinds of ideas that do push your thinking. You know, there's a lot of lateral thinking that went into Star Trek just in trying to solve those hypothetical problems that then went into real scientists uh, making some interesting breakthroughs. We got, you know, laser eye surgery because of, uh, of the thought experiments that went into this kind of laser technology in Star Trek, believe it or not. People exploring what Star Trek was exploring in terms of lasers actually led to those kinds of things. And so if we'd stopped ourselves by being too skeptical up front, basically there's some tension there between those ideas. And, and this is something that, that Carl Sagan actually played with. He said, if you're only skeptical, then no, no new ideas make it through to you. So you can't ever learn anything new if you're overly skeptical. You become this crotchety old person that's convinced that the world is ruled by nonsense. And, and, and there's all this data to support you that that's the case. But, you know, if you're too open, open-minded, you know, to the point of gullibility, you have no, not one ounce of skeptical sense in you, then you can't distinguish useful things from worthless things. And that's what he's talking about, about your brains falling out. So if all you're going to do is explore the universe in this hypothetical and never get real with it, never ask the skeptical questions, then you're also like, you're going to make weird garbage that no one's going to want to watch on TV. Part of the brilliance of Star Trek is they actually had the writers go out and do scientific investigations so they can answer questions like, what would you wear in space? And how would teleportation work? What would be the problems that could potentially happen? You know, and they, they didn't have to get everything right because they didn't have to invent the technology. But by actually applying some scientific method to that exploration, they were able to make things realistic enough that people bought it and loved it. So anyway, the, the, the point is this sort of idea of the Star Trek principle is by keeping those two things in tension, the simultaneously holding wonder and curiosity and deep exploration going down these sort of crazy rabbit holes and then applying the skepticism of, well, how could that be true? What are the facts underneath this? Where do we need to draw lines in order to not just fall into the absurd? That's where the magic of lateral thinking happens. So invention and creation, innovation is a product of someone being able to hold those two things together. This ability to explore and think through things that no one else is willing to think through with the ability to apply this sort of skeptical scientific method reasoning to it. And that's why, you know, spoiler alert, the next thing uh, in the series is, is all about the scientific method and applying that to everyday life. But once again, as with uh, everything that's on theme here, it's the and, it's those two things that, are, that seem to be in opposition of each other when you combine them, that uh, that's where the magic of lateral thinking happens. Yeah, a, a couple of the thoughts that came to mind as you were saying all that. The first one is, it almost sounds like, what if we could harness skepticism in service of curiosity and exploration? Like, what if yes. we were skeptical of our limits as a as almost like fuel for pursuing a curiosity? And oh, then I like that. As, as we, you know, I'm skeptical of the limit of, hey, you know, like, you know, the, you know, I became a CEO of a private equity fund at 28 years old. Not very common, right? And it's because I did exactly what you talked about. I started it myself and I raised the money myself until we could get salespeople to raise money for us. And, you know, I joke that the easiest way to become a young CEO is when you don't have to turn in a resume and have anybody pick you, right? Yeah. Because you're not going to get picked, you know? But I think about this idea of like, and then continuing, like as you go out in that curiosity or this exploration, and I think, you know, where Star Trek became so popular in America and we have all these, like, it's like very much like an American ideal to have like gone West. Maybe it's just because I grew up in the West. But like, you know, like that explorer spirit to have come over from Europe or to have gone West. And like, we, we have some, so many admiration stories about explorers, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. But this idea of like, and when we encounter things, instead of just going with our knee-jerk reaction or just our assumption to stop and ask those skeptical questions about what we've just explored, you know? Um, yeah. Anyways, that, that's, I, I'm interested in your reaction to a thought like that. Yeah. So it reminds me of one of my favorite thought-provoking books is uh, by a psychologist in New York named John Gartner, and it's called The Hypomanic Edge. And I don't think it's a very popular book, but it should be. What he does is he explores, he kind of psychologically profiles 
famous explorers and entrepreneurs in history. And he makes the case that the most groundbreaking people in history are a little bit on the manic spectrum. And, uh, and they're either just a little bit on the manic spectrum or they're quite manic, but they have someone that can pull them off of the cliff uh, so that their mania doesn't cause them to implode. And he says that this is valuable for society to have these people because if, uh, say you live in Europe and you don't know what's out there in the ocean if you head west, and you think there might be sea monsters, you think you know the map might end, you might drift out into space and you know or die or whatever. You have to have an irrational belief that you can beat the odds if you're going to sail out into the unknown. You have to be a little bit crazy in uh, in your a little bit manic in your beliefs. And Columbus actually, when you really dig into his story, he was I think actually crazy. Like I think he wasn't just like a little bit manic. I think he was actually like a psychopath. He irrationally believed in himself and so in, that he could be the odds. And so he sailed and, you know, and happened on that discovery of the Americas. But in this book, he goes through this and he shows how these people who are willing to go further often do so because something's wrong in their brains that says that they can beat the odds. And the lesson to be learned is that if we push ourselves, if we give ourselves a little bit of this confidence and we, we are, we sort of check that little voice that says, no, you can't do it, or this is crazy, and like push it to the side and go a little further, that's actually very helpful. You act like someone who's a little manic, you know, in, in a way that that's actually where innovation comes from. This is the case he makes. But I really like the stories that he has in there of people like Alexander Hamilton. So before the musical Hamilton, in this book, he showed how Hamilton was uh, manic depressive. He he would. I don't. Have you seen the musical or, or heard the soundtrack? No, no, I'd like to, but haven't. It's an awesome, awesome story. I'm I'm so happy they made it. Um, but one of the songs in there is "Why Do You Write Like You're Running Out of Time?" And uh, you know how he wrote like three quarters of the Federalist Papers, where they were supposed to split it between four people, and he just like wrote all of them. And he would do these, have these bursts where he would be so productive and do so much, and then he'd be depressed for three months. So like he really like had this mental health disorder, um, but he he had people in his life who helped to temper that sort of that from going too far. And I think the best example in this case is when he was under George Washington and he was always trying to like get upgraded, get promoted faster than he was supposed to. And he was always pushing to like, put, give me more men, put me in charge, put me in coach. Like I swear like I can do it. And, and so he was leading a, a battalion of troops during this key battle in the U.S. Revolutionary War. And Washington was his general and, and his mentor, really. And, and he, Hamilton was the one who would do these crazy attacks that the British wouldn't expect because they were so ludicrous, like charging their trenches with bayonets instead of lining up with, with guns and, and just like, like doing these all-out sort of manic attacks that, that caught people off guard. And, and this was actually kind of a key thing that helped them win the war. But when he was about to do something too crazy, Washington would pull him back and be like, no. And he'd do this in his personal life as well with things that, that he Hamilton was willing to try that were like a little too far out there and a little too crazy. George Washington was there as his mentor to say, you know, that's too far and pull him off of the cliff before he got himself killed. And, and basically, in this case, the hypomanic edge, he makes a case for these great explorers and innovators who pushed boundaries in social movements or in business or, or in literally exploring the world. They had those people that could pull them back from their mania, you know, getting them killed. And, uh, and I think that's an interesting way to look at this idea of innovation. Innovation is not going to happen unless you go out on a limb. But you need a mechanism to make sure that you don't go off the edge of the limb and, you know, and fall to your death. So this sometimes manifests in, you know, teams have the, the manic crazy person and then the, the balancing effort to pull them off the limb. But sometimes this is just actually developing that skepticism as the counterbalance to your willingness to explore really far. Exploring really far is no longer dangerous if you then apply a layer of skepticism and don't just accept everything that you, you hear and learn at face value. Then that, I think, is, uh, is what comes to mind uh, when you say this, that you know, people are often scared of exploring certain ideas. So growing up, there was this sort of taught to me in, in school and, and, you know, and sometimes in my personal life that, hey, if you learn about this thing, it's going to harm you. And I think as kids, often that's actually like an important thing for parents to be wary of. But as an adult, information is not a virus that's going to affect you and just take over just because you explored it. You know, knowledge is actually power, not a virus. 
So, it, but it's being confident enough to explore something that might seem dangerous and then to actually look at it and be skeptical about it. That makes it uh, not so dangerous. So that I think is the, the magic balance to be had when it comes to approaching lateral thinking. Well, maybe, maybe we can cover another key principle in this session still. Can you talk about uh, cognitive dissonance and why being smart gets in the way of innovation? Maybe you haven't covered that as much as you wanted already. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that this is uh, it's actually the perfect principle to, you know, to kind of wrap these all together because it, it comes back to that F. Scott Fitzgerald thing, you know, being able to hold two opposing ideas at the same time, being able to hold skepticism and radical curiosity at the same time, you know. This all gets at, at, at something that is deeply ingrained in our psychology as humans. Cognitive dissonance is when two things don't line up cognitively. And our brains strive for internal consistency. So we get stressed out and uncomfortable when we encounter things that don't seem to line up. And our brains will automatically do whatever they can to immediately try to line things up. So in, in one of my books in Dream Teams, I write about this in terms of balance theory. So you could say, let's, let's talk in terms of, of shapes. Let's say that, that you think triangles are good and octagons are bad. If triangles think that octagons are bad, then everything lines up. You think octagons are bad, triangles think they're bad, you think triangles are good. But if triangles think that octagons are good and you think octagons are bad and you think the triangles are good, now something's out of balance and your brain will kind of subconsciously freak out until it can line these up. So you either have to come up with a way to decide that triangles are bad because they think that octagons are good and you know that they're bad, or you have to, you'll immediately think, well, maybe octagons are good. Maybe I need to change my mind about that. But either way, your brain will automatically try to do whatever it can to rationalize this imbalance. And that's what cognitive dissonance is. And what I think someone who's a, a really good critical thinker that, uh, that is, is working on lateral thinking, that's, that's trying to apply all these things that we've been talking about, there's someone that when they encounter this thing that doesn't line up, that's out of balance, they'll try to find a reason for it rather than trying to resolve it. So they'll try to find that and by saying, they'll try to say, well, I think the triangles are good. So how could it be that octagons are also good from a triangle's point of view if I think octagons are bad? Why is this? They'll try to, to break that apart rather than try to immediately reconcile this. So in, in real life, this often happens when, you know, a bad person or someone who you think is a bad person, you know, has an idea that, that actually might be a good idea will immediately discount it because of the source or, you know, the, the opposite, someone who we like or who we believe is good or smart. And this is where the authority figure, you know, a cognitive bias or, or logical fallacy comes in. Someone who we believe is smart and good has an idea. We immediately think it's smart and good because our brains just want to make sure that everything's in balance. But, you know, to use an example that, that I'm hearing a lot from, you know, here in New York, I have a lot of friends who are not, not very happy with the president of the United States right now between their politics and between just like his, his point of view on, on New York. If, the pres if you don't like the president and the president comes out with a policy that actually is a great policy, you're going to be more likely to write that off because you can't sort of line up how this person who you don't like could have a good idea. That's actually extremely dangerous for one, but that's uh, that's not setting yourself up to to actually think in the smartest ways, and and that's where logical thinking actually goes against us because you know algebra is great until algebra is relying on a false premise. You know, we're saying a plus b equals c without thinking about the validity of a, b, and c. So that's what cognitive dissonance is all about, and it's extremely uncomfortable. But this is where the, the meta skills of lateral thinking or, or say broadly, more broadly, smart cuts thinking, being innovative come into play is training your brain to be able to handle cognitive dissonance, giving yourself tools and habits that you can think of first before your brain immediately jumps to, well, I don't like the president, so therefore this is false, ends up becoming really powerful as a way to help you automatically have your thinking process be more innovative uh, rather than be more, more sort of re reactionary. So, so cognitive dissonance is the, the thing that causes our brains to, to think that they're, they're being smart when, uh, when they need to be more, more thoughtful. And, and that's also cognitive dissonance is, is something that can be a tool if we, we learn to train our brains to engage when we notice it rather than to just try to, to find balance. You know, um, it's interesting to me how, because I've studied cognitive dissonance for, for a number of years and read the original, read, read a lot of folks beyond Festinger's students, mm -hmm. people 
that's enough. And, and, and other folks in the related space. But one thing that's never occurred to me until today is this idea of how it could be related to skepticism and curiosity and exploration and harness to our advantage. Like I like what you said earlier on when you said we need to train ourselves to think. Because as you say that, I think, you know, you're bringing up how certain authority figures, if we, if we decide that that authority figure is somebody we're going to follow, that maybe we are not being as skeptical as we should be at certain times, right? Yeah. And, and then give ourselves a pass on things. Like, I think, you know, Warren Buffett, I'm such a nerd for all this stuff, and he is yeah. classically not a tech investor. And he's always talking about how he invests in businesses where they can turn the stock market off for 10 years and he feels reasonably confident people are still going to be chewing down in 10 years. Or that's why you own Ripley's. Or people are still going to be shaving in 10 years. That's why you own Jones. Or Disney movies are still going to be selling. That's why he owns And he is criticized all the time for not being in tech and these kind of things. And mm -hmm. so when my friends would, would talk to me about investing in Apple, I was like, you know, they're absolutely great today, but you don't know the future. Like you're telling me you know how Apple works, right? And you can you can tell me that someone's not gonna come up with something better than Apple. Like that that world just changes so fast, right? And I gave myself a pass on this thinking because I'm patting myself on the back and thinking like Warren Buffett, right? Yeah. And then when Warren Buffett buys such an enormous stake in Apple, all of a sudden, all of a sudden they had to come face to face with my lack of skeptical thinking, right? And as soon as I listened to his, as soon as I listened to his rationale of why he bought Apple and how he resisted, he feels like he resisted it for too long. But as he recognizes the portion of a person's life that is consumed by this little device that's in their pocket and the absolute like category king aspects that Apple has been able to dominate with their phone. He's not discounting that things could change in the future, but all of a sudden, all of these other books that I read come into play in support of what he just said. And yet, previous to him making that choice, not on my radar at all to consider, could a, could a tech investment be treated like a discounted cash flow investment for one bucket? You know? And yeah. so it makes me think about what opportunities I'm missing, what lateral thinking I'm not doing, because I've taken such and such methodology, like I've taken it as face value, and I don't continue to critically ask where that where that might not be true or in what cases might that not be true or that these kind of things and then i get to like eat crow later when i realize wow that really strongly held belief wasn't as based on fact as i claimed it was yeah i i, I love that analogy and I, i'd never heard that story about warren buffett it it makes me think of a couple of things you know one is he i mean he's a really smart guy for a reason he's not he's flexible right like he's not gonna just never go back on something that he he said to save face or whatever. He's going to do the smart thing if circumstances change. The other thing that I, I can think of, and, and this is a little bit of a tease for, for something that's coming up you know, in, in one of our later discussions, is you realize in this case that the fundamental underlying principle to that investment strategy is not no tech. It's actually something deeper than that. That, uh, that makes those things line up. And maybe he, I mean, I don't know enough about him or the story or what he had previously said that, you know, that makes it line up perfectly, but maybe he discovered the deeper principle or maybe he had it in mind the whole time. But, but the, you know, even if, if the principle is like percentage of your life that involves this product, you know, or that relies on this product, if that's a deeper principle than, than, you know, than no tech, because that, I see Gillette and Apple, you know, in the same category, things that you're going to use every day and, and aren't going to go away 10 years from now. You're still going to need to shave and you're still going to need personal computing and, you know, to be seamlessly integrated into your life and especially across lots of devices or whatever. You know, to me, it gets at, at one of the things that, that we'll dig into with Smart Cuts, which is the idea of discovering the fundamental first principles underneath whatever it is that you're working on and then basing decisions and building your problem solving process from that point, from those observations, rather than starting from the hypothesis that you have or the point of success that you're already at, it's uh, it's actually boiling back everything so that you can start again. And I, I think that Warren Buffett example is a perfect example of that. You know, you just made me think of, you know, you know and again, I've just read so many of his books and, and admire his integrity and some of the things, right? But it comes to mind, but he says things like, Principles that are no longer true are no longer principles. So, yeah. like his early years, he studied at under Ben Graham at Columbia University in New York, and he did what's called cigar butt investing, which is a company that's terrible that's actually trading at a price even worse than its real value. You basically buy those for the for the arbitrage difference between how bad it is versus how 
insanely terrible the price is when you pick up that last little bit. And the, the analogy was it's like picking up a used cigar butt and getting one last puff out of it free. Right? Mm. And later in life, I mean, he he's absolutely the number one poster boy for Ben Graham, father of security analysis. Like he's the number one in the world poster boy for it. And yeah, halfway into his career, he changes and becomes much more like Phil Fisher and his partner, Charlie Munger. And he starts buying entire companies and he starts being willing to pay up for quality because even though he's buying, like to him, buying with a margin of safety, which means buying it for as a, buying it at a discount to its future cash flow stream, okay, is mm-hmm. that buying things within your circle of confidence. And he's got these rules that are very hard and fast, but yet he was willing to reconsider them because all sorts of other people were doing cigar butt investing and they weren't there like they used to be. And he was willing to observe that change. And then he starts buying things like Seize Candies, the chocolate company out of California, because yeah, even though it was selling at a pretty decent price compared to what it was making today, he was willing to look out in the future and saying how much better it was likely to do than the other chocolate companies, which actually does make it cheap today. Even though it's not cheap compared to today's cash flow, it's probably cheap compared to the future's cash flow. And he has like drastically changed to becoming a guy who pays up for quality instead of just buying the cheap to the cheap. And I, I don't think I'd ever put it into that context until you brought that up. Uh, anyways, just I'm like I love that. This so last night I watched the movie Pretty Woman for the first time in my life. You know, I'm like 40 years late to this or 30 years or whatever it is. And and I don't know if you remember the plot, but he, Richard Gere is, you know, he buys distressed companies and dismantles them and, and sells the parts for a profit, basically. And so he's working on this deal when he meets Julia Roberts, who, you know, she's like a good girl, but, you know, on hard times and she's a hooker. And you, you think that, and so he tries to sort of like take care of her and reform her or whatever, like, and you think that the, the story is going to be like that sort of my fair lady thing. Like he turns her into like a proper lady, but what actually ends up happening is she helps him rethink his life. And, and the, you know, the, the moral of the story ends up being that he realizes that this company that is like a family business that he's trying to do a hostile takeover and sell for parts he realizes that actually like a better move is going to be to to become a business partner with the old man that started the company and help them then turn it into an even better company than it would be sort of dismantling it from part for parts and anyway it's on my mind because i saw it for the first time and it's a great movie i'd never just never seen it and and i like that there's a couple things in there that that sort of nicely like part of why that movie is so enjoyable is because it flips what you think is going to happen on its head into something better which is the whole thing that we're talking about here with with lateral thinking flipping things on their head to have a better outcome better solution than you you had even thought of but also he literally does that in this you know this side plot of his business that he he operates from this mo and he's made billions of dollars doing it and then he finds a thinks of finds a new way to do it and it brings him even more fulfillment and is a better idea than deviating uh, deviating from the normal plan ends up being being the move anyway it's it's not as powerful of a, of a story as the warren buffett thing but but i think once you start to see what we're talking about all of these principles of lateral thinking once you understand them you start to see them everywhere and you realize this is the what great stories are all about this is where innovation and and breakthroughs in any category come from is when people do these things you know the, the funny thing though is I think it's so valuable to bring up such a drastically different story that illustrates the same point. One of the things I really, really looked up to my dad about before he passed away was his ability for pattern recognition in disparate places. Mm. And it's like, you know, I think about the book you got me to read last week, the Think Like a Rocket Scientist and the Great Mental Models, right? And I feel like they line up with everything you're talking about because, and I, I guess this is why I would catch the smart cuts so much over the years, is I feel like what you're doing is you're handing us different variations on these tools and materials to construct our own ladder, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, as you hear another principle and you can hear multiple stories of applications of it, all of a sudden my brain starts being able to have a mental map to, to start to slot these into so that for my life, I can look at it. It's almost like looking at it and trying to fit it into the map and, and overlay the map onto problems I'm trying to solve. And it helps me with pattern recognition. Like, Oh, I'm doing it. I'm not doubting my doubts here. Like, I love the Peter Thiel thing about where he asks, you know, really high, you know, big time tech entrepreneurs and people who've already quote unquote made it. And he'll say things to them like, well, why, 
why couldn't you accomplish your next 10 year goals in the next six months? And she's like, well, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the like how question, it's like, I feel like, I feel like a couple of my biggest takeaways from today, and I'd love for you to react to this, is I feel like what you're telling me is that it that I should be intentionally teaching myself how to think, including intentionally taking time away from what I already know or what I already believe and just like suspending that belief for a minute and playing the like elasticity game of getting out of my trench, of my trench warfare trench mm-hmm. and like, you know, like elastically trying all these different ideas out. And it's like, it's almost like I need to, I need to doubt what I doubt my assumptions about how to do everything, which is naturally going to be biased to what I think of it and master what I practice. And then I also need to doubt my doubts about what's possible. Authorities say this is what can be done. Previous history says this is what can be done. It's like I need to doubt my doubts and I need to doubt my own expertise temporarily. Like intentionally set some time aside to doubt both those things and see if I see any patterns. And if not, I feel okay going back to my trench and go down like what I've built skills at. But if I could periodically get myself to do that on some sort of a rotation, then I'm likely to I'm likely to discover I'm likely to discover something better. How would I you love think that. So, them yeah, it's so well put. Uh, I mean, as usual, you're you're able to articulate these things that I'm saying in, in so many fewer words. It's it comes back to the David Foster Wallace quote about taking control of how you think. And I think you know, if all you ever did was doubt everything, you're only a skeptical person, right? Like your life would be miserable, and you'd be racked with uncertainty and unable to make a decision ever, and that would be horrible but deliberately taking the time to go through that kind of thought exercise. That is the point. And, and it will give you more confidence when you do pursue a path that, you know, that you, you're doing based on, on your current information and current thinking, you're doing what you need to be doing. And, and then you know that you'll have time to, in light of new information, go through that exercise again. I think that's perfect. Really, the, I think one of the ironies of, um, of all of this stuff is uh, you know the ancient Greeks figured this stuff out thousands of years ago when when they said that true wisdom is knowing that you don't know everything. <laughs> this is is basically like boiling that down to more specifics. That that's what makes you smart is recognizing that that you don't know everything and that you could be wrong or that you could update things and yet being able to move forward knowing that that's probably the case. That is what it's all about. Well. I love it. Maybe we could wrap up with one one more story. I know we touched on it on the previous podcast we did, and, and we always talk about it in smart cuts. But to me, um, the guy who created Ruby on Rails and became the race car driver is it, a fascinating story because he's in a world of people who pride themselves on their lateral thinking and ability to bridge their own ladders and stuff, and yet leapfrogs so many people. When you think about, you know, this idea of, of doubting limits or doubting even skills he had built already and maybe any cognitive dissonance that he may have. As you think about any of the principles, principles that we have covered today, can you think in, of any of them and how they showed up in his life to be able to be frog and become the millionaire that he did? Yeah, so specifically with the story of David Heinemeyer Hansen, who you're referring to, the he's the creator of Ruby on Rails and co-founder of Basecamp, and and he's a race car driver now. Everything that he's built has operated on this principle that that doing things the way that they've always been done, just because they've been done that way, is a waste of time. And uh, it goes all the way back from the way that he thought when he was in high school. He realized that he really loved computer science and that that's what he wanted to do. I mean, he was lucky that he figured that out, you know, at that age. So many of us don't know, have any idea what we want to do at that point. But he realized that that what he needed to do in high school and college was optimize for being the best at, at that that he could. And so classes like PE that didn't matter to him, he didn't mind if he got a C, if he could spend some of that time that could have turned it into an A or whatever. PE is probably a bad example. You know, maybe it's chemistry or whatever. As long as he could pass, he put in whatever effort he needed to to pass to get the fundamentals, and then he would spend that effort on learning to be a better computer scientist. That is is just like classic thinking in this way. Like he realized that the thing that was important was going to take more thinking and take more time. And he realized that getting through school didn't need to mean getting straight A's, and you know he had parents that let him get away with that. All of that, I mean, you can see just embedded in that that little story. Like, of course, he's the guy that invented the thing that allows you to automate all these tasks in programming. So Ruby on Rails is built on top of Ruby, which is already a, a very easy programming language. 
but it makes it, uh, it automatic to do things like make a login page and password reset and you know little things that you have in every app. You don't need to recode them every time. Why not just you know type in like make login app? That's not exactly how it works, but why not just have that be the same every time? Have the work be done for you so that you can focus on the thing that you really want to break new ground on, which is whatever you're building. And that is you know it's it's a rejection of the assumptions you know around how programming should be done. It's a rejection of this sort of hard work in every way is what is honest work. Like, no, he's going to work hard on the thing that he wants to actually uh, break ground on. It's a rejection of this, how to pass high school, you know, try your best in every class. No, pass high school by getting passing grades. <laughs> That's how you pass high school. And then from there, build the path that you want to build in order to get the most out of what you want to get the most out of. All of that flows together. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people in in even the programming industry where you're supposed to be a hacker and come up with clever ways to solve problems, come up with clever ways to solve problems within the box that they're given. But if you get out of the box, to use the cliche, you get out of the car and you look at the problem from that point of view of like really getting distance on it and really understanding what are the assumptions inherent in the box that you're given, then that allows you to, to apply that same kind of creative hacker thinking that programmers are known for, but at a, a higher level and, uh, and to be able to accomplish more. It reminds me so much. We had this guy on the podcast, a nice guy, John Kostanek. He sold a company called Omniture, which is a partner to Adobe oh, yeah. for $1.8 billion. Yeah. And he, he and his buddy were making websites and making a lot of money years ago at it, what they thought was a lot of money. And their friend came in and bragged and said, oh, yeah, I'm making money while I sleep and tells them what their business is, right? Mm -hmm. And John said it just like stuck in his brain, like, I want to make money while I sleep. And he really credits that. I mean, it sounds so incredibly simple, right? But he really credits that as why he was able to build a $1.8 billion business is because they were constantly building the system so that it could be bought without needing staff time, it could be used without needing staff time, that the, yeah. like there were so many aspects of it. It wasn't just while he slept. You know, CEOs of lots of companies, the staff do both places. But almost everybody at the company was not needed for any given client. I mean, there's customer service, there's issues. But he, he couldn't get away from it. Right? And it just makes me think, how many limits did he have to doubt to create? Mm -hmm. How many how many things about how business is done? You know, like how many of the shoulds did he have to approach skeptically and and use some curiosity about, well, that's not making money while we sleep, so let's we gotta explore more, you know? And yeah. there's such a principle of the ability to duplicate, if that was your goal, to build a multi-billion dollar business, right? The ability to duplicate and not need to raise more money, hire more staff to service more clients, this is a this is a pretty yes. great strategy. And so yes. I guess as you're saying that, I'm just thinking like, man, how many of my clients, how many friends, and how much, how many of the thoughts of me and my partners are taking on the shoulds of what we've been told of how to build, you know, we're trying to build a media company to get free advertising for our real estate investment books, right? And this is how you sell passive real estate income. Mm -hmm. That's how these investments work. How many shoulds have we bought into that maybe we do need to go down? You know, this is how you build a media company. How yeah. many, how many shoulds are we not being skeptical and just saying like, maybe, but maybe, maybe not. Like, let's investigate it instead of just take it as the gospel truth and go get in line with everybody else. Yeah, I, 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 I love it. It's, you know, it's not an easy route to go, right? It's not an easy thought process to, to constantly check in on that. But it's also, I mean, if you're motivated to do something bigger or better or more impactful or more important, you know, and you're motivated to build a business that that runs itself so that you can save kidnap victims, you know, like then you you want to take on this hard mental work. And that's the thing, too, is, you know, if you work harder thinking wise, like Einstein said, you're still doing hard work. Actually, a lot of people avoid that kind of work because it's difficult. You know, we'd rather do the hard manual work or the hard work that's, you know, in a proven path than the agonizing work of rethinking things but that's that's how you get paid in a you know in a groundbreaking way whether we're talking actual money or or just results in general is by doing that hard mental work yeah i think about how often a junior team member or intern of somebody has come to me and said well what about this and i've just dismissed them yeah i don't want to take the time to really consider it right and what disadvantages i've done to the whole organization you know like I think about, you know, we want to do more undercover rescue missions of child rescue. And 
there's other folks who have become much better marketers, other charities who are better marketers at that than us. And I remember on this trip to Japan, I was going to the Toyota factories to learn about you know, operational excellence from the, from the experts, right? And I thought, what if we went the complete opposite direction? And I was able to think, you know what? The government is already paying a salary of 900,000 cops in this country. And I'm thinking, you know, Center for Missing and Exploited Children figures there's 100,000 American kids get exploited every year for the budget out from other adult children. And State Department figures there's about 8,000 foreign-born kids sold into America each year. So uh. I'm thinking, my, my little charity is not going to rescue 108,000 kids. We're just, we're not set up for that. It's just not possible. But I just don't like those stats. You know, like, I can have the coolest CIA guys, the coolest FBI, Delta Force, Navy SEALs working for us, and we're just not going to be able to get 110,000 kids. But is there a way that we could incentivize the government to give budget and training for 900,000 cops to save 100,000 kids? Now, that all of a sudden, mm-hmm. that all of a sudden seems like something I'd put some money, you know, like that feels like more reasonable bet, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm just thinking, like, as you're saying all this stuff, like, I don't know, it is hard work. It is hard work to stop and think now, and I feel like I'm not making progress, and I always want to win, and I always want to be efficient, and this does not feel like winning or efficient. This feels like stopping. This feels like losing ground to sit around and think about what if we're wrong, you know? So, Shane, I feel like we've covered a lot of great ground. I feel like it really helped me with the breakthrough for myself today. Can you tease us a bit with what we're going to get on our next session here in the mini-series? Yeah, so in the next episode, we're going to dig deep into the scientific method and how to apply it to your personal life and your decision-making. So rather than in a laboratory and rather than in abstract, as we've talked about a little bit, actually breaking down the steps of using the scientific method in very clever ways. And that's going to feed into the how-to part of first principles thinking. And and all of that's going to feed into actually coming up with creative, innovative, groundbreaking ideas alternatives to brainstorming, ways to actually put lateral thinking into practice now that we've covered the mindsets and the frameworks for uh, that underlie how lateral thinking works. We're going to actually dig into how to actually do it, starting with that scientific method. I love it. Everybody, please turn into episode two of the Smart Cuts mini-series, and uh, Shane, thanks for making time. Thank you, as always.